Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Margaret Mead Welcome everybody to the podcast, Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. I'm Credo, and my co-host is Glaucon. We both invite you to take historical ideas within their context along with us, examine the thinkers and the timeless ideas they provide to us. These ideas are as relevant today as they were back then. It's our hope and our belief that in doing so would bring us closer to the truth. Just note that the views expressed by the host do not in any way reflect the personal views of the hosts themselves. All right, let's do this. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about the I Ching, which is another Chinese classic. We talked about the Tao Te Ching, and the I Ching is the Book of Changes. So it's all about change and capturing change in reality. To understand the I Ching in kind of a more clear way, we've got to step back a little bit and talk about what's called Taiji. And Taiji is the yin-yang symbol, captures the idea as well, that people see. It's kind of like the town and country sign where you've got two tadpole-looking shapes next to each other with a dot on each side. So that yin-yang sign is actually called Taiji, and it means ultimate extreme. And that captures the idea of the Tao becoming a binary thing with opposites, or sometimes people don't necessarily think of them as opposites, but complementary halves. So both of those are ideas that are associated with this idea of yin and yang. So you've got yin and yang, and yin is like dark and receptive, and yang is like bright and creative, among other things. And so the first thing that happens when the Tao is kind of disrupted, we could say, is yin and yang arise. So you get a kind of breakdown of everything and nothing, the one or the Tao, and it becomes two things. And then those two things could be further divided into five things. And that's the idea of Wu Xin, which is the five elements. And the five elements are metal, water, wood, fire, and earth. And those five elements interact with each other in the same way as yin and yang interact with each other. But the five elements are now five things instead of two things. And traditionally, the idea of the five elements, there's a creation cycle and a destruction cycle. So the creation cycle goes along metal, water, wood, fire, earth, and then back to metal. So you have to have a metal container to boil water to be able to get water that you can drink. Then you have to use water to grow plants, and that's how we get wood. We have to use wood to get fire. When we have fire, we get earth as a result of fire. And then from the earth, we can get metal. And so we've gone around with a creation cycle. And then we also have the destruction cycle. And here, metal can cut wood. Wood can pierce the earth as roots, tree roots. Water can douse fire, right? Fire can melt metal. So we have this way in which each element gives rise to the next element and then it can be checked by another element or weakened. So we have the yin-yang idea of opposites and we have the five element 
idea we were just talking about. So in traditional Chinese medicine, there are three schools of thought, three schools of traditional Chinese medicine, and those schools have a variety of things associated with them. But for simplicity's sake, we'll just talk about acupuncture for a minute. So there are three main schools of acupuncture. One derives from the idea of yin and yang and the balance in the body of yin and yang. So some part of the body is going to have too much yin, some part is going to have too much yang, some part's not going to have enough yin, some part's not going to have enough yang. And so you have to seek balance within the yin-yang to find a harmonious, healthy person, to create a harmonious, healthy person. And with the five elements, you have five different elements inside the body that have to be balanced and brought into sync. And so we have five element acupuncture. And then we also have eight trigram acupuncture, which is now eight instead of five, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But so the five element idea of acupuncture, for example, right, I've got a part of my body, a fifth of my body is associated with water. And that's going to capture a couple of important organs. For example, the urinary bladder and the kidney. And then I have the metal part of my body, and that's going to capture other organs, lungs and large intestines. And then fire is going to be related to my heart, my pericardium, small intestine. And the earth is going to be related to my stomach and my spleen. So internally, a fifth of my body is each of the elements. And then the way in which those elements are balanced and harmonized is in line with the creation and destruction cycles. And a person's health is balanced, brought into harmony by making sure that those elements are relating to each other in the right way. So we have a much more complex system than yin and yang, but we can also grasp more nuances in terms of health and sickness. And that's if we're talking about the five elements inside the body. But you could also be talking about the five elements in many, many different ways, and actually any way that you can think about anything at all. So the idea is that the entire universe is made up of metal, water, wood, fire, and earth. The entire universe can be understood in terms of the relationships between those elements. So we were just talking about medicine, but it could also be politics. It could be social situations. It could be fighting. So for example, in Chinese martial arts, there's Taiji, which is based on the yin-yang sign and the cosmological theories related to the yin-yang idea just like we were talking about acupuncture related to yin-yang. So the martial art of Taiji Chuan is based on that idea. Then we have the Wuxin, the five element theory. That gives rise to another internal martial art in the Chinese system called Xingyi, mind form boxing. And in mind form boxing, a fighter will fight the way that they fight. Actually, any fighter will fight the way that they fight based on their internal health or sickness. So the way that their organs are strong or unhealthy is going to cause them to fight a certain way. And the fighter that can recognize the organ pattern of a person by looking at their face or hearing their voice or seeing how they stand will know how to fight that person most effectively. And it's hard to kind of grasp this just by talking about it initially, but you kind of see that even the way I talk or the way I stand or the way I think, my psychology, is going to be connected to the five elements and how they're balanced in my body. So if my internal balance 
is a certain way, it's going to be expressed in every aspect of who I am and how I am. Whether I'm, we're talking about my heartbeat, the pattern on my tongue, or how I think about things, whether I, I'm easily angered or I'm very shy, those things are all going to be connected to the balance or lack of balance in my five elements. And so the same thing is going to be true about the eight trigrams. And so the reason why we're talking about this is because this is kind of important to understand to be able to understand how the I Ching works. So the trigrams are dashed and straight lines. And commonly, right, people have seen these, for example, in the Korean flag. The Korean flag has heaven, earth, fire, and water on it. It's missing four of the other trigrams. And I believe some ancient versions of the Korean flag actually had all eight. And that comes from this idea, this cosmological idea of the trigrams, which is a binary system, as I was saying. And the binary are yin and yang lines. So we see how it is arising out of the yin-yang idea. So it's arising out of the Taiji idea. Then we get the eight trigrams. And then each of the trigrams is related to organ systems, like we said before, and things in nature or certain tastes that people have or psychological dispositions people have. And when we talk about the trigrams, the eight trigrams are heaven, earth, fire, water, mountain, wind, thunder, and lake. And those are the expressions of nature. But as I said, it cuts through every single aspect of reality in the universe. So that's just kind of a quick idea about the yin-yang, five element and eight trigram kind of view of things, cosmological ideas. So a couple things that I take away also that I think are really fascinating is it captures even more of what we would normally think of as something capturing. Like, for example, I think you alluded to the seasons, right? The seasons are captured by the five elements, for example, uh, spring, summer, autumn, winter, and then the changing of the seasons. Those are five things. Uh, but we also see it in color. We see it in direction. And the consistency between both the five elements as well as the eight trigrams is particularly interesting because, like, for example, the direction, okay, you would see north, south, east, west, and center. Those are five directions. And then you would think, well, it couldn't really translate to eight then, right? I mean, that would be incompatible. It's already set in those five directions. But then you get a north, south, east, west, northwest, southeast, northeast, and southwest. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think it's, from my standpoint, you know, one thing I would want to know more about is if I'm an outsider looking in and I don't have a lot of familiarity with this or something like that, what would make me choose either the, the Taiji, the five elements, or the eight trigrams? What would make one more, I don't know, suitable for someone in trying to make that consideration? Right, that's a great question. So I think, you know, we've got kind of natural inherent pressures on these systems. And so what I mean by that is if we're looking at only two things, it's going to be a lot easier to manage, but it's going to give us less nuanced information about reality. If we're using five elements instead of two, now we have a lot more complexity and we get a lot more nuanced understanding about if we're using it medically. For example, we get a lot more understanding about sickness or health, or if we're using it martially, we would have a lot more access to different methods of fighting, say, for example, perhaps. And if 
we are looking at the eight trigrams, now it's an even more complex, potentially much more complex system. And when you look at acupuncture, the yin-yang sort of approach is more simple initially. And the five element approach is kind of like in between the yin-yang and the bagua eight trigram approach. The eight trigram approach starts to become kind of unwieldy because it's, it becomes more complicated to figure out exactly what's going on because now you're dealing with eight different moving parts instead of five. And initially we were talking about two moving parts, which is more easy to kind of manage. So those are kind of, I think, the pressures there. And we're leading into the I Ching, and the I Ching is basically 64 hexagrams. So you take the trigrams from Bagua, the eight trigrams, and you multiply eight times eight because you stack them into hexagrams instead of trigrams. And those hexagrams then become 64 different units. So we, we started with two, then we went to five, then we went to eight. And if we're looking at the I Ching, we're talking about 64. So it's much more complex to try to pin down, if that makes sense. It does, yeah, thanks for going through that. So in looking at that, right, where did the I Ching come from? I mean, how did it come into existence? Because obviously something this complex would have been a pretty heavy undertaking, right? Right, so it is really a very curious thing because it's older than Chinese writing. And today people think of it as an oracle. And there's evidence that people thought of it as an oracle in the past. It is a book that there is evidence of kind of related pre-I Ching stuff that's like eight or 9,000 years old. So it's, there's some super old evidence of it. And when I was studying archeology span in undergrad, I kind of did some research because I was curious about the I Ching already at that time. And I kind of wanted to do some research on that stuff. So I did that for one of my projects and looked at some of the work that was being done in China from some of the early people that lived in China. And they were using turtle shells and hot sticks out of the fireplace. And what they would do is they would take a stick out of a fire and then touch it to the turtle's shell. Maybe they'd eaten the turtle earlier. And so the turtle shell was there. They touched the stick to the turtle shell and then the turtle shell would break and crack because of the hot ember that was touching it. And the way that it broke or cracked would be something that they would use for divinatory purposes. So that's a kind of precursor for the broken and straight lines in the I Ching, potentially. And that's from archeological digs. Right, And so we have this interesting story about Fu Shi, right, who is this ancient character in Chinese history slash mythology. And Fu Shi supposedly grasped the I Ching. He's the person that's credited with developing, creating the I Ching. He supposedly grasped the I Ching by looking at the back of a turtle. And so that kind of lines up with this archeological stuff I was just talking about. However, there could be some other <laughs> more strange explanations for it than, than the archaeological one. But it's good to mention it because it is definitely something that's around. So the idea is that Fushi looked at the back of a turtle and saw the hexagrams or at least the trigrams on the back of a turtle. And there is this idea of what's called a magic square with the numbers one through nine on it. And when you put those 
numbers inside of the magic square. There's nine boxes inside of the, the square. It says square, and then there's two lines across each side so that it makes nine little squares inside of a square. And then you put the numbers one through nine in that. And if you add them up when you have them in a specific order, every single direction diagonally straight up across adds up to 15. So that's this idea of a magic square. And these are things that were pretty common in the ancient world. And I've seen some of them in Europe in some churches and stuff. They have some that go up to 33, which is the age of Christ when he was killed. So <laughs> there's other places where, there, where these magic squares occur. But so the idea is that Fushi saw the magic square on the back of a turtle and from that created the I Ching. So that's one story we have about it. But really, you know, it's, it's a mystery where it comes from. And we'll talk about a couple other ideas about it a little bit later. But any, any thoughts about that or anything you want to add? Well, yeah. So thus far, you know, we've obviously touched on mathematical explanations to our existence and stuff. I think it's already very interesting that uh, we see a, a similar track here. Fushi, he also had a miraculous birth and was kind of a divine being in his own right. Yeah, that's right. So Fushi and Nuwa were partners, and they both actually, in, in lots of these depictions of them, are half snake, half human, which is pretty interesting. And there are some other Chinese stories about humans coming from snakes and also from Taoist origins. And the I Ching is a Taoist thing. At least it's, it's put in the category of Taoist stuff. And in Chinese thought, you know, the, the Taoists are always like slightly, they're kind of naughty, right? They're not pure like the Buddhists who are just only doing kind of the straight and narrow good stuff. The Taoists are slightly naughty and they can be up to sorcery every once in a while. And so this is kind of captured in some of the Chinese myths. There's this story, the, the myth of the white snake, about some snakes that meditate for thousands of years and become humans, and that happens in Hanzhou, but that's kind of a side note. So there, there is this kind of way in which we have human slash snake slash Taoist stuff around. And so we see some of that with Fushi and Nuwa. And Nuwa, very interestingly, right, is the character associated most strongly with the Chinese flood story. And what's funny about Nuwa is that it's very similar to Noah, right? It's just that it's a female version of Noah. And so now we have this kind of interesting kind of connection because we have this idea of Fushi and Nuwa being the ones that kind of survived the flood and then re-established human culture. And also we have the idea that Fushi is the one that's kind of credited with the I Ching. And so some people have thought that it's possible that the I Ching is this kind of antediluvian pre-flood text that survived the flood and was brought on the ark from the world before the flood, right? So that's something we can hang on to and maybe we'll circle back to that later, but it is a pretty bizarre idea. So there's this way in which it's possible that the I Ching has this kind of like ancient, ancient origin. And as we said, it's binary, you know, and I think you've kind of looked at some of the stuff to do with how Leibniz thought about it. Yeah, yeah, I have. So I guess uh, just in general, we should probably just revisit for a moment. So Leibniz, uh, if you recall, we introduced him as 
uh, particularly maybe one of the brightest minds to ever be featured on the podcast. He was involved in invention and math and philosophy, science and language. And we mainly brought him in to, to discuss his argument for the best of all possible worlds, as well as his theory of the universe. So he lived during the Enlightenment and, you know, he's recognized for not just accepting what we all would have understood at that time to be reality, but try to imagine a new way to push science and math and human understanding further. And so this new model that he was thinking about was going to be more sophisticated than just arithmetic and the decimal system, for example. And this led him to the agent, interestingly enough, which we'll get to in a second. But I think that based on what I could see, it looks like Leibniz personally believed that the I Ching was the most mathematically advanced thing in the world because he recognized that people probably don't fully understand it. And as you alluded to, it's believed that he's derived the notion of binary code from the I Ching. Just before we get into that, um, he was corresponding with the Jesuits in China and he wrote a European commentary in 1703. He argued that the I Ching proves the universality of binary numbers and theism. He stated that broken lines or zeros cannot become solid lines or ones. And it was also a reference to nothingness and oneness like we opened this podcast with. So the zeros can't become ones unless he believed that God intervened. This is also interesting because Leibniz later would use binary code or binary system to try and create a universal language. but. You know, just to kind of give a nod to how much he was influenced by this, the article he wrote regarding his new system was titled, quote, Explanation of the Binary Arithmetic, which uses only the characters 1 and 0, with some remarks on its usefulness and the light it throws on ancient Chinese figures of Fuxi. So this binary code uh, is just 1s and zeros. It's the code we use in nearly every modern computer or computer system today. And, you know, we probably take for granted a little bit how... You know, if we're looking at digital photos or our phones or listening to even MP3 music, actually, or DVDs, these are really just digital representations of reality. It's not really reality itself, right? In fact, we can look a little bit further and the representations of reality we're observing or participating in or experiencing is really just a string of these binary signals and, and we're completely surrounded by them, right? And they're just commonly noted as ones and zeros. We should note that this is the work of Leibniz. And this fundamentally shaped our entire essence of the digital age. And it was a simple code. It was complex in its simplicity. One of the quotes I guess I could pull out is he famously wrote that, quote, all these operations are so easy that there would never be any need to guess or try out anything. And so more importantly, perhaps we should just, I guess, since this is the Yijing podcast, just note that this is the work of Fuxi as well. The yin and the yang are the ones and zeros, as you've mentioned. And so these abstract concepts represent the poles of any binary set. And so those are some of the findings I could find on Leibniz. I, I think what's maybe most interesting to me is just how nobody really thinks about the I Ching when they think about binary code when clearly this predated Leibniz, right? And clearly yin and yang, you would look at it and you would be like, oh yeah, those are complementary ideas or you know, uh, ideas that are the opposites of each other, as some people say, but we just never, that never comes to mind. Why do you think that is? Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting, right? Because when you, when you really step back and think about it, you know, with logic, we're able to capture sentences and the kind of rational meaning and structure of sentences. And we do that with truth tables. And truth tables are true and false 
properties. So if we have a variable, it has a potential to be true or false. And when we get a variety of variables, we need more lines in our truth table to be able to capture the entire truth possibilities, truth and falsity possibilities of a sentence or a statement. But we can capture the potential truth or falsity of a statement with binary. And then we can create languages and we can have programs that run on this stuff, like you said. And I think, you know, it sounds like right based on what Leibniz himself wrote, that he was inspired by the I Ching to think about things in this binary way because it's a binary number system, you know. And the idea of ones and zeros really, you know, is exactly the same idea as any other system of binary, whether it's true and false or yin and yang or ones and zeros. So I think probably the most likely, right, the reason why the I Ching wasn't credited with that insight is because Leibniz probably structured it in a way that was more readily recognized by Western culture or understood by Western culture. And there's always the, you know, the, uh, the worry that you have people looking down on other cultures, especially at that time, I think would be more, more likely to happen than now. But it's been a problem in academia, right? That it was a problem when I was working on my philosophy stuff in grad school. I, I was always working on comparative work with Eastern and Western philosophy, and I'd always get pushback because people felt like, oh, well, maybe that shouldn't really have a seat at the table or shouldn't be part of the traditional canon in the same way as these other things. And so part of that has to do, I think, with the kind of prejudice towards things. But also, I think part of it has to do with what people are used to, you know. And when you look at the I Ching, it's a very cryptic, very, very cryptic text. And it's not the kind of thing you can just start reading and get into it. It is this very unapproachable, inaccessible text. And I think that's part of it, you know. And I think it just wasn't kind of structured in a way that allowed people to comprehend the nature of that binary system and what it produced. Because if you look at probably some of Leibniz's mathematical binary work, it's going to be more in line with other work that people were doing, and so they're going to have a better, more easy way to access it. But the I Ching is, it's not clearly understood, and Leibniz said, you know, he didn't understand it. But he knew one thing, that it was way more advanced than anybody realized. So if Leibniz is having problems understanding it, then all of us will have problems <laughs> understanding it, you know. Yeah, I mean, to that point, there's this interesting overlap as well with DNA that I was looking at and the I Ching. DNA conveniently uses adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. So those are uh, four, right, nucleotides. Then when combined together, there's a codon, which is basically eight. These are the hexagrams that we've been talking about. And so anyway, you end up with 64 combinations that can be created with each codon group. And then these are attached to a double helix. That's the DNA structure, which I guess in many ways you could see it as, you know, two sides kind of complementing each other in, in many ways. And I think there's, you know, when I was just looking and just before we get too deep into the DNA and the aging, you know, one thing that really kind of blew my mind is that all life forms, I mean, all diverse life forms from plankton to dinosaurs to humans, 
you know, only four of these nucleotides are used and grouped into 64 possible combinations. So the eJing, again, it's eight trigrams by eight trigrams, which is 64 combinations. But, you know, we can also use the thymine, the adenine, the guanine, and the cytosine as like 0, 0, 0, 1, 1, 0, and 1, 1, for example. And then you basically have this binary code slash eJing kind of recognizable four-part system here. And just like how, for example, if you take a language like Vietnamese or English or something, you know, they use the same alphabet, but the languages are worlds apart. And so DNA and the eJing, there's an argument, at least if they could exchange information, that they might actually understand each other because of the way in which, as you mentioned, these tables, there's that table with the eJing, which we'll get into later, but it has every possible combination. Similarly, with the 00011011, you would also have those same combinations. In fact, Martin... Schonberger, he's a German scientist and the author of The Eging and the Genetic Code, he recently discovered that the two codons, which contain the genetic chemical message, for example, like to stop, to stop producing, they have the same numeric structure as hexagram 63. And the codon that basically would say go or start producing, genetically speaking, corresponds to hexagram 64. And that's pretty incredible because if you look at the table, 63 and 64 are essentially almost the same thing with the e-gene as well. So one last thing to mention is that so DNA, it's the blueprint and it deals with creation, right, of proteins. But RNA, which is the reverse copy of it, is kind of the thing that carries out the DNA's instructions for protein production. So it's the receptive one versus the creative one. Anyway, I just thought that was really cool how it lines up with yin yang further. And it kind of, at its most core, DNA creation is change, you know, and that's what we're all talking about here. Yeah, it's powerful and crazy stuff, really. And when you look at the four, right, the base parts of DNA, you also, in the I Ching, you have the yin and yang lines, like we said, the broken and solid lines, but you also have a broken line that's becoming a solid line and a solid line that's becoming a broken line. So there's actually four units there. You've got a solid line and a solid line becoming a yin line. You've got a yin line and the yin line becoming a solid line. So the, the change is actually kind of the essence of it in a sense. And it is pretty bizarre that you can capture all of life in terms of this pretty straightforward, simple mathematical system, right? And the fact that it mirrors the I Ching is very interesting, right? And we also know that Fushi Nuwa story is also one that involves them creating things and creation is part of the story. So there's this way in which the Fushi Nuwa story is kind of like a mixture of creation and the flood myth. And so it has relevant aspects of, you know, for us in the West, just given our Judeo-Christian Islamic kind of tradition that we're from, we look at things in terms of Genesis. And in, in Genesis, we have the story of creation and the story of the flood and the story of the Garden of Eden and all those things. And interestingly enough, all of those ideas are captured in early Chinese writing and are still evident today when we look at the radicals of various Chinese characters. So, you know, we are talking about a lot of different things today, but 
we will kind of bring all these things together in some sense after we've gotten through this episode. And then we're going to do another episode on the I Ching where we're going to examine some of the hexagrams. And we're going to talk about ways to bring all of these ideas we're discussing today together with the ideas of the hexagrams we're going to talk about. But just to go back to the characters for a second, the Chinese characters for a second, there is the character for boat, and that is comprised of radicals, including the radical for a vessel, and then eight, the number eight, and the character for people. So the idea of a boat is eight people on a vessel, which is the same idea as Fuxi and their family members, Fuxi and Nuwa and their family members, and also the idea of Noah and his family members on the original boat. And as we said, Nuwa is like the female concept of Noah. And then we have other really interesting ideas. There's the idea of a garden. The character of a garden in Chinese characters is a combination of dust, breath, two people, and an enclosure. So that's the idea of a garden. And then we also have the idea of forbidden or to warn. And that is two trees and underneath it is God. And that's the idea of forbidden or to warn. So that's also something very Genesis sounding stuff. And then we have the idea of to covet, which is two trees and a woman. And then we have the idea of the devil, which is a secret man in the garden. And then we have the idea of a tempter, which is the devil with two trees and a cover. So very, very weird, interesting stuff that there are these deep kind of similarities with these early ideas, concepts that were captured in Chinese pictographs, you know, when they were first creating the language, because that's where this stuff comes from, right? It's super old. And usually when you're writing and you're thinking about Chinese stuff, you don't really microanalyze the radicals or think about them in this way. But it is very interesting that they end up having this quality about them. I don't know. Any, any thoughts about that? You're totally right. You know, you don't really think about it if you're writing it in normal everyday speech. I'm sure many, you know, I don't mean to speak for them, but probably many Chinese people probably wouldn't think about it either. But, you know, there is a reason why these things make up the characters that they make up, right? And, and you mentioned how Fuxi, this is kind of pre-Chinese language, and uh, or at least the what we recognize today as modern Chinese, and it's pretty pretty incredible that I mean it's just it's unquestionable that these things had had influence in the language so much so that we still see it today. You know, you mentioned it, even to create that character is speak dust life and walk, which is like you know the Judeo Christian version of God breathing life into man kind of thing, right? And so it's pretty fascinating, and I think it's something that again. I think it would surprise a lot of Westerners to see that there were not only these overlaps, but that it was so long ago. Um, so I, I really appreciate you adding that to the podcast. No, absolutely. And then the other really interesting thing we should talk about before we close this first episode on the I Ching is the idea of the turtle. You know, we brought up before that there's archaeological evidence of turtle shells and their use for divination. And then we have this story of Fuxi looking at the back of a turtle and from that, grasping the idea of the I Ching. So there's a couple ways we can go with this. One is, 
that there's literally a way in which Fushi looks at the back of a turtle and grasps the idea of the I Ching. Another possibility is that by looking at nature and understanding weather and the seasons and plants and animals and the way that nature itself changes and moves, the patterns in which it changes and moves, and using that, one is able to grasp something like the underlying pattern of the universe and then get to something like yin-yang or the five elements or the eight trigrams or the I Ching. It would be very hard to do, but I think that is probably more reasonable than saying he just looked at the back of a tortoise and saw the I Ching. So I think it's a mystery. It's definitely a mystery. Some interesting ideas and thoughts about this are, though, that I remember a long time ago, someone was making a joke about kind of indigenous views of the origin of the universe. And one of them was, you know, the world is on the back of a turtle and it's just turtles all the way down. And I, you know, when I first heard that, I just thought, well, who in their right mind would think that the universe is on the back of a turtle and it's turtles all the way down? That doesn't even make any sense. That's just a crazy thing to say. And who would say that and why would they say it? You know, and I just kind of put that somewhere in the back of my mind. I didn't really think about it again. And then I was thinking about this way in which turtles are associated with the I Ching and the way in which the I Ching kind of gets at the mathematical nature of genetics, you know, and also the way that the I Ching works, which we haven't really talked about yet, in terms of generating 64 archetypes. So we've talked about yin and yang, and so in a sense, that's like having two things. And then we talked about the five elements, that's like five things. So we could, you know, if we were talking about it socially, we could say, oh, well, this social situation is, you know, it's a lot of fire with a little water or something like that. But that would be pretty hard to do because social situations are really nuanced. But when you look at the I Ching, the entire work that's left to us, that we have access to now in the modern world, is a kind of social version of it. So it's 64 social archetypes and how they relate to each other. So instead of the five elements and it being a medical theory or a political theory or a martial theory and how it interacts, it's 64 hexagrams and how they interact with each other. And the part that Confucius and others worked on was the social part. So it's basically a book about human life and the way in which we interact socially and the kinds of things that happen to us as people, the kinds of things we worry about as people, and the kinds of things we hope and dream about as people. So it's a lot, it's a lot of stuff to talk about. But so the point is that the I Ching seems to be this book about the very essence and nature of reality, because on one hand, it's talking about genetics, the very structure of life itself. On the other hand, it's able to express and capture the very nuanced and complex way in which we interact socially with each other. And those are two very different things. But that's exactly the kind of thing that the yin-yang, five-element, bagua, and I Ching ideas are supposed to do. They're supposed to capture everything in reality. So just interesting that it was something that was discovered by looking at the back of a turtle. And then this, there's this idea that 
the universe itself is on the back of a turtle. And then we already talked about the idea that it's a binary system and that all of our digital representations of reality that we enjoy, movies and computers and games and computers, are all based on that binary mathematical system, which is also related to the I Ching. So a lot of weird stuff there, all on the table at once. So today we started looking at Fuxi and the I Ching as a continuation of our look into Eastern philosophy. So to preface it, and to help ease into the complexity, we first began with yin and yang and the basic idea of opposites. We then looked at the five elements, the wuxing, and then the eight trigrams, the bagua, before moving on to briefly mention the 64 hexagrams that are in the I Ching. And we'll look much closer at that in the next episode, but you'll be happy that we slowly walked you into this because it'll make much more sense the next episode when you listen to it. We also went briefly into how much each of these schools of thought encompasses. We also talked about how insightful each is and how consistent they all are, which to me is maybe the most impressive. We also looked at how the cosmological theory of the universe presented in the I Ching became a driving and influential force in the world outside of Asia. It played a role in the Enlightenment period, surprisingly enough, and it made an impression on Leibniz. We also spoke to some incredible parallels between DNA, the I Ching, as well as about turtles and the story of Noah's Ark. So I'd just like to touch on one thing just before we close out the podcast. And there's one other note before I get to that. There was an interesting point this one person had made I came across where they basically said that the binary code developed by Leibniz and used today in computers and programming wasn't based on the I Ching. Importantly, the I Ching itself dates to prehistory in a time that predates the separation of rational and non-rational thought in the human mind. And it basically says that what Leibniz had come up with was a simplified version of the multi-dimensional numbers and the numbering systems of the I Ching. I thought that was an interesting kind of thing. And we've kind of alluded to that, but it just kind of caught my attention. Like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And, and I think we really shouldn't look at the age of the book in terms of how how we might look at whether or not it's simple or simple-minded or something like that. I think it really is something that could be a, a divine key to the universe. I don't want to overblow it or, or be dramatic, but... Um, so, there's an interesting excerpt from a letter sent from uh, Joachim Bouvet. It was sent to Leibniz, dated May 18, 1703. It had a circular hexagram order in it, and it attributed it to Xiaoyang. In it, the letter read, quote, But let us come to the principal subjects of your letter. That is, the relation of my binary arithmetic to the model of Fuxi, who is believed to be one of the most ancient kings and philosophers known to the world, and who is seen as the founder of the empire of the Chinese and their sciences. The model being, therefore, one of the most important ancient monuments of science found today in the universe, one that is more than 4,000 years old, it would seem, and one that perhaps has not been understood at all for several thousand years. It is a very surprising thing that it matches perfectly with my new manner of arithmetic, and that I should have written you about my arithmetic at just the appropriate time. That is, just when you were applying yourself to the decipherment of these lines. So this is interesting because it seems to suggest, kind of like with the Leibniz and Newton thing we'd mentioned previously on the podcast with the laws of calculus, that Leibniz might have actually come up with binary code before he discovered the I Ching. 
again, there's no way we're ever going to know this. I would just like to know uh, if you had any thoughts on if you would be surprised or what you think about that. No, I wouldn't be surprised, actually. I wouldn't be surprised because we know that Leibniz and Newton and many characters at this time were deeply involved in trying to push the sciences forward, push mathematical insight knowledge forward, push physics forward. And so it doesn't seem unreasonable to think that they were working with various number systems with different bases. So like, so for example, the, I think the Babylonians had a base 60 number system. So that's why we have 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds in a minute. And why we have 360 degrees in a circle and other 60 based kinds of things like angles and triangles and stuff like that. It's because the Babylonians had a 60 60 base number system. We have a 10 base number system and the I Ching is a two base number system. So I'm pretty sure that Leibniz, Newton and others were aware of those base number systems. So binary itself is something that is around and is there and is graspable. And especially someone with the mathematical mind of Leibniz would know that Descartes would know those things. They would know those things. So that doesn't strike me as strange at all. And I think people are very, you know, eager to find origins for people's insight, intellectual insight in other places rather than in their minds. And part of that has to do with what we've talked about in the past with knowledge from experience and knowledge that's innate to us. So I think in a sense, Something like binary is probably, in a sense, innate to us, you know? So it's discoverable within our minds, is what I mean by that. So I think it is funny that Newton and Leibniz came up with calculus at the same time, right? And it is also very funny that you have this way in which different people are thinking about binary at the same time. But it makes sense, though, because you've got the kind of precursors to these things or ideas that are going to be able to give rise to these things laying around and you have brilliant people thinking about this stuff all the time and so they're probably going to stumble upon similar insights you know that's one kind of like less dramatic and sensational way to think about it but i think that's that's a possibility you know and also there could be some weird way in which people the sort of like ability to have access to these innate ideas is sort of more they're more available to us at different times in history you know, it's, it's a weird kind of thing because there's, there seem to be periods in history when humans kind of flourish intellectually and in terms of wisdom. And then other times when they, when they don't appear to be flourishing or developing in a very powerful way. So it's, it's, it's a good question. It's hard to know. Yeah, I, I had a similar thought in mind. I think we can all just be thankful that it was discovered. <laughs> might be pretty dull without it uh, in terms of the digital reality that we probably wouldn't have right now. And as always, you know, we want to thank everyone for listening. We hope that this discussion can inspire you on your own search for truth. And we hope to see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends.